Book Five, Part Four of Xenophon's Anabasis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anabasis by Xenophon, translated by H. G. Dawkins. Book Five, Part Four, Number Seven. Presently, the soldiers came to learn what was in course of agitation and Neon gave out that Xenophon had persuaded the other generals to adopt his views, and had a plan to cheat the soldiers and take them back to faces. The soldiers were highly indignant, meetings were held, little groups gathered ominously, and there seemed an alarming probability that they would repeat the violence with which they had lately treated the heralds of the Colchians and the clerks of the market, when all who did not save themselves by jumping into the sea were stoned to death. So Xenophon, seeing what a storm was brewing, resolved to anticipate matters so far as to summon a meeting of the men without delay, and thus prevent their collecting of their own accord, and he ordered the herald to announce the assembly. The voice of the herald was no sooner heard than they rushed with great readiness to the place of meeting. Then Xenophon, without accusing the generals of having come to him, made the following speech. I hear that a charge is brought against me. It is I, apparently, who am going to cheat you and carry you off to faces. I beg you, by all that is holy, listen to me, and if there be found any guilt in me, let me not leave this place till I have paid the penalty of my misdoing. But if my accusers are found guilty, treat them as they deserve. I presume, sirs, you know where the sun rises and where he sets, and that he who would go to Hellas must needs journey towards the sunset." whereas he who seeks the land of the barbarians must contrariwise fix his face towards the dawn. Now is that a point in which a man might hope to cheat you? Could any one make you believe that the sun rises here and sets there, or that he sets here and rises there? And doubtless you know this too, that it is Boreas, the north wind, who bears the mariner out of Pontus towards Hellas, and the south wind inwards towards the faces, whence the saying, When the north wind doth blow, home to Hellas we will go. He would be a clever fellow who could befool you into embarking with a south wind blowing. That sounds all very well, you think, only I may get you on board during a calm. Granted, but I shall be on board my one ship, and you on board another hundred at least, and how am I to constrain you to voyage with me against your will, or by what cajolery shall I carry you off? But I will imagine you so far befooled and bewitched by me, that I have got you to the faces. We proceed to disembark on dry land." At last it will come out, that wherever you are, you are not in Hellas, and that the inventor of the trick will be one sole man, and you who have been caught by it will number something like ten thousand with swords in your hands. I do not know how a man could better ensure his own punishment than by embarking on such a policy with regards to himself and you. Nay, these tales are the invention of silly fellows who are jealous of the honour you bestow on me. A most uncalled-for jealousy! Do I hinder any of them from speaking any word of import in his power, of striking a blow in your behalf and his own, if that is his choice? Or, finally, of keeping his eyes and ears open to secure your safety? What is it? In your choice of leaders, do I stand in the way of any one? Is that it? Let him step forward. I yield him place, and he shall be your general, only he must prove that he has your good at heart. For myself I have done, but for yourselves— if any of you conceive either that he himself could be the victim of a fraud, or that he could victimize any one in such a thing as this, let him open his lips and explain to us how. Take your time, but when you have sifted the matter to your heart's content, 
Do not go away without suffering me to tell you of something which I see looming. If it should burst upon us and prove, in fact, anything like what it gives signs of being now, it is time for us to take counsel for ourselves, and see that we do not prove ourselves to be the worst and basest of men in the sight of gods and men, be they friends or be they foes. The words moved the curiosity of the soldiers. They marvelled what this matter might be, and bade him explain. Thereupon he began again. You will not have forgotten certain places in the hills, barbaric fastnesses, but friendly to the Saracentines, from which people used to come down and sell us large cattle and other things which they possessed. And if I mistake not, some of you went to the nearest of these places and made purchases in the market, and came back again. Claretus, the captain, learnt of this place, that it was but a little one and unguarded. Why should it be guarded, since it was friendly? So the folk thought. Thus he stole upon it in the dead of night, and meant to sack it without saying a word to any of us. His design was, if he took the place, not to return again to the army, but to mount a vessel, which, with his messmates on board her, was sailing past at the time, and stowing away what he had seized, to set sail and be gone beyond the Euxine. All this had been agreed upon and arranged with his comrades on board the vessel, as I now discover. Accordingly, he summoned to his side all whom he could persuade, and set off at their head, against the little place. But dawn overtook him on his march. The men collected out of their strongholds, and whether from a distance or close quarters, made such a fight that they killed Claretus and a good many of the rest, and only a few of them got safe back to Saracus. These things took place on the day on which we started to come hither on foot, while some of those who were to go by sea were still at Saracus, not having as yet weighed anchor. After this, according to what the Saracentines state, there arrived three inhabitants of the place which had been attacked, three elderly men, seeking an interview with our public assembly. Not finding us, they addressed themselves to the men of Saracus, and told them they were astonished that we should have thought it right to attack them. However, when, as the Saracentines assert, they had assured them that the occurrence was not authorized by public consent, they were pleased, and proposed to sail here, not only to state to us what had occurred, but to offer that those who were interested should take up and bury the bodies of the slain. But among the Hellenes, still at Saracis, were some of those who had escaped. They found out in which direction the barbarians were minded to go, and not only had the face themselves to pelt with stones, but vociferously encouraged their neighbours to do the same. The three men, ambassadors, mark you, were slain, stoned to death. After this occurrence, the men of Saracis came to us and reported the affair, and we generals, on being informed, were annoyed at what had taken place, and took counsel with the Saracentines how the dead bodies of the Hellenes might be buried. While seated in conclave outside the camp, we suddenly were aware of a great hubbub. We heard cries of, Cut them down, shoot them, stone them, and presently we caught sight of a mass of people racing towards us with stones in their hands, and others picking them up. The Saracentines, naturally enough, considering the incident they had lately witnessed, retired in terror to their vessels, and upon my word, some of us did not feel too comfortable. All I could do was to go to them and inquire what it all meant. Some of them had not the slightest notion, although they had stones in their hands, but chancing on some one who was better informed, I was told by him that the clerks of the market were treating the army most scandalously. Just then some one got sight of the market clerk, Zelarchus, making his way off towards the sea, and lifted up his voice aloud, 
and the rest responding to the cry as if a wild boar or a stag had been startled, they rushed upon him. The Saracentines, seeing a rush in their direction, thought that, without a doubt, it was directed against themselves, and fled with all speed and threw themselves into the sea, in which proceeding they were intimated by some few of our own men, and all who did not know how to swim were drowned. But now, what do you think of their case, these men of Saracis? They had done no wrong. They were simply afraid that some madness had seized us, like that to which dogs are liable. I say, then, if proceedings like this are to be the order of the day, you had better consider what the ultimate condition of the army is like to be. As a body you will not have it in your power to undertake war against whom you like, or to conclude peace. But in private any one who chooses will conduct the army on any quest which takes his fancy. And when ambassadors come to you to demand peace, or whatever it may be, officious people will put them to death and prevent your hearing the proposals which brought them to you. The next step will be that those whom you as a body may choose as generals will be of no account, but any one who likes to elect himself general, and will adopt the formula, shoot him, shoot him, will be competent to cut down whomsoever he pleases untried, be it general or private soldier, if only he have sufficient followers, as was the case just now. But just consider what these self-appointed generals have achieved for you. Zalarkis, the clerk of the market, may possibly have done you a wrong. If so, he has sailed off and is gone without paying you any penalty. Or he may be guiltless, in which case we have driven him from the army in terror of perishing unjustly without a trial. While those who stoned the ambassadors have contrived so cleverly that we alone of all Hellenes cannot approach Sarasus safely without a strong force, and the corpses which the very men who slew themselves invited us to bury, we cannot now pick up with safety even under a flag of truce. Who, indeed, would care to carry a flag of truce, or go as a herald with the blood of heralds upon his hands? All we could do was to implore the Saracentines to bury them. If, then, you approve of such doings, have a resolution passed to that effect, so that, with a prospect of like occurrences in the future, a man may privately set up a guard and do his best to fix his tent where he can find a strong position with a commanding sight. If, however, these seem to you to be the deeds rather of wild beasts than of human beings, bethink you of some means by which to stay them, or else in heaven's name how shall we do sacrifice to the gods gladly, with impious deeds to answer for? Or how shall we, who lay the knife to each other's throats, give battle to our enemies? What friendly city will receive us when they see rampant lawlessness in our midst? Who will have the courage to afford us a market, when we prove our worthlessness in these weightiest concerns? And what will become of the praise we expect to win from the mouths of men? Who will vouchsafe it to us, if this is our behaviour? Should we not ourselves bestow the worst of names on the perpetrators of like deeds? After this they rose, and as one man proposed that the ringleaders in these matters should be punished, and that for the future to set an example of lawlessness should be forbidden. Every such ringleader was to be prosecuted on the capital charge. The generals were to bring all offenders to the bar of justice. Prosecutions for all other misdemeanors committed since the death of Cyrus were to be instituted, and they ended by constituting the officers into a board of die-casts, and upon the strong representation of Xenophon, with the concurrence of the soothsayers, it was resolved to purify the army, and this purification was made. Number 8. It was further resolved that the generals themselves should undergo a judicial examination in reference to their conduct in past time. 
In the course of investigation, Philisius and Xanthocles, respectively, were condemned to pay a sum of twenty minae, to meet a deficiency to that amount occurred during the guardianship of the cargoes of the merchantmen. Sophonetus was fined ten minae for inadequate performance of his duty as one of the chief officers selected. Against Xenophon a charge was brought by certain people, who asserted that they had been beaten by him, and framed the indictment as one of personal outrage with violence. Xenophon got up and demanded that the first speaker should state where and when it was that he had received these blows. The other, so challenged, answered, When we were perishing of cold, and there was a great depth of snow. Xenophon said, Upon my word, with weather such as you describe, when our provisions had run out, when the wine could not even be smelt, when numbers were dropping down dead beat, so acute was the suffering, with the enemy close on our heels, certainly, if at such a season as that I was guilty of outrage, I plead guilty to being a more outrageous brute than the ass, which is too wanton, they say, to feel fatigue. Still, I wish you would tell us, said he, what led to my striking you. Did I ask you for something, and on your refusing it to me did I proceed to beat you? Was it a debt for which I demanded payment? Or a quarrel about some boy or other? Was I the worse for liquor, and behaving like a drunkard? When the man met each of these questions with a negative, he questioned him further. "'Are you a heavy infantry soldier?' "'No,' said he. "'A peltast, then?' "'No, nor yet a peltast. But he had been ordered by his messmates to drive a mule, although he was a free man. Then at last he recognized him and inquired, "'Are you the fellow who carried home the sick man?' "'Yes, I am,' said he, "'thanks to your driving, and you made havoc of my messmate's kit.' "'Havoc,' said Xenophon. "'Nay, I distributed it some to one man, some to another to carry, and bade them bring the things safely to me, and when I got them back I delivered them all safely to you, and you on your side had rendered an account to me of the man. Let me tell you, he continued, turning to the court, what the circumstances were. It is worth hearing. A man was left behind from inability to proceed further. I recognized the poor fellow sufficiently to see that he was one of ours, and I forced you, sir, to carry him to save his life for if I am not much mistaken, the enemy were close at our heels. The fellow assented to this. Well, then, said Xenophon, after I had sent you forward, I overtook you again, as I came up with the rear guard. You were digging a trench with intent to bury the man. I pulled up and said something in commendation. As we stood by, the poor fellow twitched his leg, and the bystanders all cried out, Why, the man's alive! Your remark was, Alive or not, as he likes, I am not going to carry him. Then I struck you. "'Yes, you are right, for it looked very much as if you knew him to be alive.' "'Well,' said he, "'was he any the less dead when I reported him to you?' "'Nay,' retorted Xenophon, "'by the same token we shall all one day be dead. "'But that is no reason why meantime we should all be buried alive.' "'Then there was a general shout. "'If Xenophon had given the fellow a few more blows, it might have been better.' "'The others were now called upon to state the grounds on which they had been beaten in each case. "'But when they refused to get up, he proceeded to state them himself. I confess, sirs, to having struck certain men for failure in discipline. These were men who were quite content to owe their safety to us. Whilst the rest of the world marched on in rank and did whatever fighting had to be done, they preferred to leave the ranks and rush forward to loot and enrich themselves at our expense. Now if this conduct were to be the rule, general ruin would be the result." I do not deny that I have given blows to this man, or to the other who played the poltroon, and refused to get up, helplessly abandoning himself to the enemy, and so I forced them to march on. 
for once in the severe wintry weather I myself happened to sit down for a long time, whilst waiting for a party who were getting their kit together, and I discovered how difficult it was to get up again and stretch one's legs. After this personal experience, whenever I saw anyone else seated in slack and lazy mood, I tried to spur him on. The mere movement and effort to play the man caused warmth and moisture, whereas it was plain that sitting down and keeping quiet helped the blood to freeze and the toes to mortify, calamities which really befell several of the men, as you yourselves are aware. I can imagine a third case, that of some straggler stopping behind, merely to rest for rest's sake, and hindering you in front and us behind alike from pressing on the march. If he got a blow with the fist from me it saved him a thrust with the lance from the enemy. In fact, the opportunity they enjoy to-day of taking vengeance on me for any treatment which I put upon them wrongfully, is derived from their salvation then, whereas if they had fallen into the enemy's hands, let them ask themselves for what outrage, however great, they could expect to get satisfaction now. My defence, he continued, is simple. If I chastened any one for his own good, I claim to suffer by the same penalties as parents pay their children, or masters their boys. Does not the surgeon also cauterize and cut us for our own good? But if you really believe that these acts are the outcome of wanton insolence, I beg you to observe that, although to-day, thank God, I am hardier than formerly, I wear a bolder front now than then, and I drink more wine, yet I never strike a soul. No, for I see that you have reached smooth water. When storm arises, and a great sea strikes the vessel amidships, a mere shake of the head will make the lookout man furious with the crew in the forecastle, or the helmsman with the men in the stern-sheets. For at such a crisis even a slight slip may ruin everything. But I appeal to your own verdict, already recorded, in proof that I was justified in striking these men. You stood by, sirs, with swords, not voting tablets, in your hands, and it was in your power to aid the fellows if you liked. But to speak the honest truth, you neither aided them, nor did you join me in striking the disorderly. In other words, you enabled any evilly disposed person among them to give rein to his wantonness by your passivity. For if you will be at pains to investigate, you will find that those who were then most cowardly are the ringleaders to-day in brutality and outrage. There is Boiscus the boxer, a Thessalian. What a battle he fought then to escape carrying his shield! So tired was he, and to-day I am told he has stripped several citizens of Catoria of the clothes on their backs. If, then, you are wise, you will treat this personage in a way the contrary to that in which men treat dogs. A savage dog is tied up on the day, and loosed at night. But if you are wise, you will tie this fellow up at night, and only let him loose in the day. But really, he added, it does surprise me with what keenness you remember and recount the times when I incurred the hatred of some one, but some other occasions, when I eased the burden of winter and storm, for any of you, or beat off an enemy, or helped to minister to you in sickness and want, not a soul of you remembers these. Or when for any noble deed done by any of you I praised the doer, and according to my ability did honour to this brave man or that, these things have slipped from your memories, and are clean forgotten. Yet it were surely more noble, just, and holy, sweeter and kindlier to treasure the memory of good rather than of evil." He ended, and then one after another of the assembly got up and began recalling incidents of the kind suggested, and things ended not so unpleasantly after all. End of Book 5